John chapter 9, right at the end of the chapter, verse 39. This is the word of God, let us hear it. And Jesus said, For judgment I am coming to this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If ye were blind, ye should have no sin. But now ye say, We see. Therefore your sin remaineth. And then Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. Just two verses, verses 8 and 9, where we read, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 9. We know the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. If I could call your attention to that portion in verses 8 and 9, where we read these words, we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. We see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians and told them that we walk by faith and not by sight, he also emphasized the fact that walking by faith is something that we can and should do with confidence. Therefore, we are always confident, he says, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 6, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, verse 7. And then in the next verse, he goes on to say, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Do you see from those two verses the emphasis that he puts on confidence? He was confident because he knew the truth of what awaits the believer after his brief time in this world. He was confident because he knew the basis for his confidence was in the promises of God and the truth of Christ. Now, it could not be said of the Hebrews that Paul addresses in our text that they were confident. Quite the contrary. Their confidence was waning because they were being driven much more by what they saw with the fleshly eye and what they experienced in persecution than what they were seeing by faith. And to be fair to these Hebrew Christians, we should note that it is true in general that when times are easy 
and the circumstances of life are smooth and pleasant, then it's far less challenging to make our affirmations of faith. It's easy to walk by faith when there are no challenges to our faith. When the things we see with the fleshly eye don't seem to contradict our affirmations of faith. But when life becomes difficult because of outward afflictions or various challenging circumstances, then it seems that the only reality we know is the reality of the harshness of what we're having to endure in life. These things press upon us with such force that it becomes very easy to be governed by what we see and feel rather than what we affirm by faith. And so we find ourselves in constant need of having to adjust our vision, so to speak, so that we're able to live our lives on the basis of unseen realities more than on the brief and temporal things that characterize this world. One of my favorite verses that has come to be one of my favorites in the New Testament is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 18, where Paul says, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Interesting that in Peter's second epistle, after describing the virtues that are to be added to our faith, he then says in verse 9, But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. He cannot see afar off, or in other words, he's nearsighted. He can only see the things that are near at hand, which are the temporal things of this world. And so he needs a vision adjustment of sort, sort of like what a person needs when he visits the eye doctor and gets a new prescription for his vision. Now God has ordained in his wisdom that the sacrament of the Lord's table becomes that vision adjustment, so to speak, something necessary to help keep our spiritual vision sharply in focus. We see plain and sensible signs in the bread and in the cup, but these sensible signs are designed to make us see by faith what is only symbolized in the material elements. We are to look beyond the elements, in other words, and behold by faith the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's what these elements are designed to bring to our attention, to bring our focus very sharply on those things. Now, in our text this morning, from Hebrews 2, Paul describes for us what we should see, what we don't see, and what we will see eventually. Note from verses 8 and 9 of Hebrews 2 again, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. That is, God has put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. 
For in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. What I'd like to do for a few moments this morning is to analyze this text in the way I just described it. In other words, these verses describe for us what we don't see yet, what we do see now, and what we will see eventually. Okay? What we don't see yet, what we do see now, and what we will see eventually. Let's think first of all then on what we don't see yet. Note again the words of verse 8. But now we see not yet all things put under him. Oh, we long for that to happen. We long to see all things put under him. This is our heart cry. This is the desire of every true Christian to see all things put under him. But we don't see that yet. Indeed, you could say that the very groaning of all creation is to that end. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, Paul writes in Romans 8:22, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. There is a sense, you see, in which the whole creation is groaning for the consummation of redemption. Only then will this world be free from all the turmoil and tragedy that characterizes the world now. Only then will nations cease seeking the exaltation of themselves through the destruction of others. All bondage shall cease, all fetters will fall when this sin-cursed world at last gives way to a new heaven and a new earth that will come to pass at the coming of Christ. Whenever I hear of a loved one's fight with a prolonged disease that eventually takes that loved one's life, I heave a sigh and within that sigh, you could say, a petition ascends to heaven, which goes like this, Even so, come Lord Jesus. Revelation 22 and verse 20. Come and deliver this world from the curse under which it now groans. And when I read of natural disasters, of tsunamis and hurricanes and all such storms that take the lives of many and inflict property damage that practically defies calculation, my heart cry then also is, Come, Lord Jesus, deliver this world from the curse under which it now groans. There will be no such disasters, you see, in the world to come. I believe that one of the purposes behind such disasters is to lead us as Christians not to set our hopes too firmly on the things in this world, 
This world is transient, and this world at its best is altogether vain. This world in its current condition is at war with God and has been throughout the history of civilization. We see not yet all things put under him, our text tells us. So what do we see instead? Well, in the words of Psalm 2, we see the heathen raging and the people imagining vain things. We see the kings of the earth setting themselves and rulers taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. The Jewish believers to whom this epistle to the Hebrews is addressed were certainly feeling the effects of that text in Psalm 2. And throughout the history of the church, this has been what we've seen. So that right up to the present day, the world is filled with various theories of conspiracy, which all demonstrate the truth of Psalm 2. 9-11 was an inside conspiracy, we're told, on the part of those that would usurp power to themselves. You ever hear that theory? Things like the disease of AIDS or COVID-19 are man-made diseases deliberately designed to reduce the population of nations so the world can be more effectively controlled by some group of uh, rich elitists, or by China, if you will. Global warming is nothing but a power-grabbing scheme on the part of some extremist environmentalists with extreme views and ambitions to rule the world themselves. And the theories go on and on, some more plausible than others, all of them proving to us that we see not yet all things put under Christ. But we don't need to go beyond ourselves to prove this point. If we're honest, after examining our own hearts, we have to admit that we don't see yet even ourselves being brought into subjection to Christ to the degree that we would desire. We still struggle with sin. We meet the resistance of our own sin natures as we attempt to advance our sanctification. Paul will make mention later in this epistle of the sin which does so easily beset us in chapter 12 and verse 1. We're still engaged in our spiritual warfare of casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We haven't arrived yet, have we? And I think everyone knows this. And so by looking out and by looking in, we are forced to affirm that we see not yet all things put under Christ. We could go on, I suppose, for hours proving the truth of this verse. I seriously doubt that anyone here would dispute the truth of it. 
The world demonstrates the truth of it to us on a daily basis. But we need to press on. We've considered what we don't see yet. Let's think now for a moment on what we do see now. What we do see now. You'll note at once the contrast presented to us in these verses. The contrast between what we don't see yet, but what we do see now. Look again at verses 8 and 9. But now we see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God should taste death for every man. We see Jesus. We see him now. We see him, of course, with the eye of faith. These communion elements are to direct our faith, to behold him. And let me say here that this is where we must strive to keep our focus. The Hebrew Christians would have had trouble affirming what Paul writes in verse 8, that we see not yet all things put under him. They would have had no trouble affirming that, I should say. But their problem was that they were failing to see Christ and their lives were on the brink of being ruled only by what they were able to see with the carnal eye rather than what they should have been seeing by faith. And if all you can see today are the various ways in which the heathen rage and the kings of the earth take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, if that's all you can see, but you're not seeing Jesus, then you're depriving yourself of the power of the gospel. You're sentencing yourself to chronic dismay and despair and cutting yourself off from the peace of God that passes understanding and from the joy of salvation that is unspeakable and full of glory. Would you notice what the text says about how we see Jesus now? We see him in his condescension. He was made a little lower than the angels, our text tells us. He condescended so low as to become a man. He entered into this sin-cursed world knowing that he would not be received, but that he would instead be despised and rejected. As a man, he beheld firsthand the awful effects that sin had taken on this world. He beheld men and their diseases, and he healed many of them. He heard the news of tragedy while he walked this earth. He refers in Luke's gospel to 18 persons who were killed when a tower in Siloam collapsed. And he made sure that he corrected any wrong thinking about such a tragedy by pointing out that those men who died those tragic deaths were not sinners above all sinners, so that they invited such a tragedy to themselves as a mark of judgment. Christ said, rather, that the message of that current event was that we are all vulnerable to tragedy, and we all have need, therefore, to make sure that we repent of our sins. So we see Jesus as a man, 
But we see him as more than that. We see him as God come in the flesh. The bread preaches the message to us that he was a man, that he is a man. But our text goes further and teaches us that Christ made himself lower than the angels and took to himself the seed of Abraham for a very specific purpose, for the suffering of death, verse 9 tells us, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Do you see that phrase, he, by the grace of God? What an incredible manifestation of grace this is. There have been, and there are those, you see, who would challenge the notion of the very existence of God on the basis of what they fail to see. They take the tragedies of life and the disasters of the world to be strong indicators that if God exists at all, he must either not care or he must be powerless to do anything about what is taking place in the world around us. That kind of thinking, of course, overlooks completely the impact of man's sin upon the current state of things. This world was not originally created to be a place of woe that would bring forth death and disaster. Man's sin brought God's curse upon the world and upon man himself. Death is the very essence of that curse. But now there comes this incredible manifestation of grace that demonstrates so forcefully that God in spite of man's rebellion against him, has not been indifferent to the plight of man, nor has God been powerless to do anything about it. Christ came for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And please note that Christ's taste of death amounted to much more than a little sampling of death. I know when you read that phrase, taste of death, it's easy to envision a scene like what you have in a grocery store, and you have people stationed at various places with little tiny samples of food or desserts or whatnot, in order to get you to try to buy a certain product, they give you uh, but a sample, a small taste. Well, don't let that view uh, color your interpretation of the text. Please note that Christ's taste of death amounted to much more than just a sampling of death. He experienced death, in other words, to the fullness of its penalty. He bore his father's wrath. He was cut off from his father for a time. And death in its essence means separation from God. His soul was severed from his body. His body was laid in a tomb. And he, for a time, in a way that really defies comprehension, was cut off from his father. That's death. Death in its fullness. And would you notice from the text that he tasted death for every man. 
the shedding of his blood from Calvary's cross would so throw open the doors to life that any and every man who would could gain access to life by virtue of Christ's death. This is the very epitome of grace. We sometimes define grace, don't we, as unmerited favor? Sinners are the ones that deserve to die. Christ is the only man ever to come into this world that did not deserve to die, but he died freely in order to open the door to life for whosoever would come and partake of it. So now we see Jesus. We see him coming into this world taking to himself the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, that he might render obedience to his Father, even obedience unto the death of Calvary's cross. That's how we must see him. This is what we're to remember regarding him around this table. We see him come in the flesh. We see his body broken for us his blood shed for us, and when we see him this way, then our peace and our joy can't be disturbed by the circumstances of life. We fall into a trap by gauging the love of God by the circumstances of life, and if you find yourself in that trap, look to the greatest manifestation of love that divine wisdom could conceive. Look to Christ dying on Calvary's cross. No greater manifestation of, of, of love could be demonstrated. If God gave you every material thing in this world that your heart had a longing for, that would not come close to comparing what God has given in the giving of his Son. Oh, the heathen rage, and the kings take counsel together against him. And we may gain some insight into the counsel of the rulers against Christ, but these things cannot and should not rob us of our peace and joy. For while we see not yet all things put under him, we nevertheless see Jesus, who came for the suffering of death and tasted death for every man, and we've embraced him by faith, or at least I hope you've embraced him by faith. And there is a definite sense in which we do embrace him by faith in our participation of this communion sacrament. And while we behold the awful effects of sin upon this world and upon men and women that we love, we also behold Christ and we praise him for the way he's manifested the grace of God to us. So we see Jesus in his condescension, made lower than the angels, made so low as to become a man. We see Jesus in the fulfillment of the purpose for which he came, coming to suffer and die in our place. We also see him in the words of our text, crowned with glory and honor. Thank God the grave couldn't keep him. He is exalted to the right hand of God. He is seated there, having purged our sins. 
and as the reward of his atoning death, we do affirm by faith the opening words of verse 8, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. Oh, everything has been put in subjection under him to the extent that nothing escapes his sovereign dominion. It's true that we see not yet all things put under him, and what this means is that we must affirm by faith that even though all things are not yet put under him, they nevertheless will be by virtue of his atoning death, and in a sense, in a positional sense, have been put under him. And this leads to my final consideration this morning. We've considered the things that we see not yet, and we've considered what we do and should see by faith. It remains for us to consider finally what we will see eventually. What we will see eventually. I've been calling your attention to that part of the verse that says, but now we see not yet all things put under him. Would you underscore that important little phrase, not yet? That's what reconciles this part of the verse to the first part of the verse. All things have been put in subjection under his feet. His Father has committed to him all power and authority to rule and reign. Christ has won his exalted position as ruler of the world by virtue of what he's accomplished in his atoning death. And so, positionally speaking, all things are put under him. Practically speaking, we see not yet all things put under him, but on account of the reward he's earned by his death, we can affirm by faith that that time will come when we will see all things put under him. That really is the amazing thing about the Bible, you know. The story of redemption has been told from start to finish, even though we have not yet, historically speaking, reached the end. But do you think that the end of the story could somehow be thwarted when Christ has been successful in each step of the development of redemption? The thing that I love so much about Psalm 2, and the thing that I resort to often from that psalm, is the fact that the raging heathen and the counsels of kings and rulers against Christ affords God occasion to laugh. He that sitteth in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Psalm 2 and verse 4, and as you've heard me say countless times, it isn't very often that you find occasion in the Bible when God laughs. But the very notion that the raging heathen and the councils of pagan rulers can somehow thwart or overthrow his purpose gives God occasion to laugh. So we will see all things eventually put in their proper place, which is tantamount to saying that all things will be subjected to Christ's rule. His rule will prevail. 
This may not be readily apparent to the eye of the flesh, but this is what makes it all the more important that we walk by faith. Faith sees Christ exalted now. Faith understands that Christ has earned the right to rule. And so we pray that the Lord will indeed show forth his power and bring into subjection all those things that have, positionally speaking, already been put in subjection under his feet. And we should recognize that the delay to this desire in our hearts serves a very important purpose. Why is it that all things are not yet under his feet? Why is it that we don't see that yet? Well, Peter tells us in his second epistle that we're to account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. God still has a purpose in extending salvation to lost souls. We are still living in a day of grace when rebels against God are invited to surrender to Christ to the saving of their souls. I hope you see then how important it is not to be dominated by the things that we don't see yet. We see not yet all things put under him, but we do see Jesus. We see him in his condescension becoming a man. We see him coming into this world in order to taste death for every man. And we see him even now with the eye of faith, crowned with glory and honor at the right hand of his Father. These are not cunningly devised fables. Christ's incarnation and atoning death and resurrection and ascension are realities. Don't make the mistake of thinking that just because we affirm these things by faith that they are not reality. Oh, the Lord's table is designed to sharpen our focus on reality. Let's be sure then to see Christ in his humiliation and exaltation with the assurance that what we don't see yet, we will see eventually by virtue of who he is and what he's accomplished. Oh, may our time around this table indeed sharpen our spiritual focus. Let's close then in a word of prayer before we distribute the elements. And let's all pray. O oh Lord, as we bow in thy presence now and bring this study to a close, we thank thee that Christ has prevailed to gain all power and authority being committed to him and that he is right now in the process of building his church and extending his kingdom. And we thank thee, Lord, that though we don't see it yet, we know that his kingdom will come and will be done on earth as it is in heaven, especially when he returns and ushers in a new heaven and a new earth. O oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt help us not to be overly disturbed by what the carnal eye sees, but may our focus on the truth of Christ be very sharp especially as we remember him now 
in his broken body and his shed blood. So, Lord, draw near to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.